If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. We're headed to Mark, but we're going to start in Romans. So Romans chapter 5. We say this a lot uh, before we begin into this time, uh, almost weekly, but very often. And I want to remind you of this, that if God doesn't bless this time, then we meet together in vain. And so the cry of our hearts in these moments ought to be, God, speak to us through Your Word. Speak to us by Your Holy Spirit through Your Word. Help me to hear, Lord. I want to hear Your voice. And so with that heart, I just invite you to pray with me before we get started. Father, we come to You, Lord, because You're the fountain. You're the infinite God, Lord, and we are, we are weak. We are sinful. And we can't do anything apart from You, Lord. And yet You have made us Your own called us by Your name. And You've commanded us, Lord, to gather together. And we're obeying You even now, Lord. But the cry of our heart is, Come, Lord. Come meet with us. Come speak to us, Lord. Come teach us Your Word. Come open our eyes that we may behold, Lord, Your Son Jesus in all of His glory. God, I pray for this church, Lord. And I pray, God, that You would just give us a fresh revelation of Jesus this morning. Lord, turn our face to the heavens this morning and help us, Lord, individually in this room to cast our eyes on the Savior, Your exalted Son with all glory. Help us to behold Him. Help us to see Him. Help us to bow down and to worship Him, Lord. Help us to love You. God, we ask for help this morning to hear Your words, and I ask for help this morning to teach Your words, Lord. You are completely sufficient, more than enough, Lord. And we ask You to come glorify the name of Your Son, Jesus, among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to start in a verse in Romans 5, verse 12. And I want to begin, as we get started, I want to set a backdrop for the passage that we're about to dive into in Mark. I want to set a backdrop... Uh, for this passage, and it's, the backdrop is the bad news of the Bible. And we have a very quick, short summary of the bad news of the Bible in Romans 5, verse 12. I want you to see that. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the bad news of the Bible. Now, Romans 5, 12 just pointed you back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3 records for us the temptation and the fall of Adam, the first man. Okay, And what you need to know about the bad news is that before Adam sinned, God promised Adam. He made him a promise. The God who never lies made Adam a promise. And He said, on the day that you sin, you will surely die. And then immediately after, Adam sins. Same God judges Adam with the words, "To to dust you shall return. This is the promise of God towards sin and the judgment of God towards sin. So from the very beginning, okay, three chapters in the Bible, the message of the Bible is that the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's Romans 6.23. Death is twofold in the Scriptures. It is an earthly death, but it's also an eternal death. Death is an expression of the wrath of God towards sin. And death is the ultimate and final effect of sin. So we're tracking Sin brings forth death. Now, Romans 5 is very clear about this point. The entry point, the origin of sin into this world that you live in is through Adam. 
right? That's very clear. But what you need to know is that this is only the beginning. Genesis 3 was only the beginning. And Romans 5.12 unpacks that this, this cancer, this curse, this thing called sin spread to who? Spread to all men. This death and sin spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was only the beginning. But we see that the effects of sin are universal. And that the curse of sin is passed down on the entire human race. Every single person spread to all men because all sinned. Listen to Isaiah 24. This is verse 5 and 6. This is another good summary of this. Isaiah 24, 5 and 6 says, The earth is defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Do you see that? This curse is, is over all the earth, the entire human race. In this life, you have and are currently affected by sin. Sin produces, in this life, it produces sorrow, sickness, and suffering. And the end, the ultimate end of sin is death. And according to the Scriptures, death is terrible. Think about this. Death is a final and an internal reminder of our rebellion against our God, our Creator and King. Death is terrible. Job 18.14 calls death the king of terrors. 1 Corinthians 15.26 calls death the last enemy, the final enemy. This is death according to the Bible. Now, the bad news for us is that you, us corporately, and that you individually, in your natural state, you have sinned and you will die. This is the bad news of the Bible. What will you do about this terrible news? This is the question for us as we come to this text. Now, many who have gone before you in this life, in this, in this world that God has created, have asked that question. Listen to this famous quote by, this is a, a, a famous scientist that was converted later in his life. Listen to this question. He says, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? This was his two fundamental questions as he approached religion. Now this gets at the ultimate question, right? The ultimate question is, is there any hope for us? Death and sin have spread to all men. Is there any hope for us? Is there anyone that can deliver us from this dominating cycle of sin and death, sin and death, sin and death, sin and death? Is there any hope for us? This is the backdrop for the text that we're about to jump into. And what Mark reveals to us is that Jesus Christ can deliver us from all the effects of sin, including death. This is the message of this passage today. He alone can reverse the curse of sin. He alone can deliver us from sin and death. So here's where we're at. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings for quite a few weeks. And where we're at now in Mark chapter 5 at, towards the end of Mark chapter 5, we've been walking through a series of miracles in the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 5. Many of you will remember this. Most of you will remember this. We're in a section of miracles. There's four of them in this section. Mark 4 and 5. The first was Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the mega storm. He calms it with a word from His mouth. Okay? And through this miracle, Jesus displays His authority over nature. Over the created world. He's Lord over all that He has made. 
And then the very next story that we come to in this section of miracles, uh, last week Ryan taught on this, that Jesus, he cast out thousands, plural, thousands of demons with a word from his mouth. Not an arm wrestling match, okay? Didn't swing a physical sword. He spoke a word and drove out thousands of demons with this miracle. Jesus shows us that he has all authority over the demonic realm. Okay, and today you're going to see another miracle and Jesus is going to, just like those two, Jesus is about to demonstrate for us his authority over disease and death. Now I want to give you something to think about as we jump into this, to this passage today, that these miracles that we've seen, the four that I just mentioned, these are displays of the power and the pity of Jesus. Power and pity. And here's what I mean by that, that these acts... They show the mighty power of Jesus Christ, but God uses these same acts, and they're also a revelation of the compassion and the great mercy of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Think about the storm. Unbelievable power Jesus demonstrates when he opens his mouth and he stops the hurricane, right? Unbelievable power. But that same act also revealed great mercy toward a, a group of fearful disciples in the boat. Do you see that? Power and pity. Next miracle, it was the Jesus driving out the demons out of this gathering man. And you see unbelievable power. Thousands of demons leave at the command of Jesus at his voice. But in this same act, you also see great mercy, right? That Jesus Christ delivers a man with a thousand, thousands of demons in him. Great mercy towards this man. And so what I want you to see today, we're about to walk into this text and you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see Jesus reverse death. You're going to see him conquer a hemorrhage. But what you're also going to see in this same passage is you're going to see a woman who finds great mercy from Jesus. And you're going to see a family of a little girl who's shown great compassion from Christ. And so here's what I'm reminding you of this morning. This, don't miss this message in the Gospels that Jesus Christ, he loves sinners. Jesus Christ is full of compassion and mercy towards sinners. He cares. He is compassionate towards the ones who are under this curse, who, towards the ones who are suffering under the effects of sin. Now we are, all of us, in our natural state, we are under the curse of God because of sin. But God has shown great love towards sinners in the person of Jesus. So let that hang as a backdrop over this text as we begin to unpack it together today. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Our text today will be verse 21 through verse 43. Now, we usually would read this together and then jump into it. But what I want to do is I want to let the story unfold as we unpack it. So we're going to go a little bit, unpack, go a little bit, unpack. And I think this, this story has a lot of drama in it that I want it to unfold as we go through together. So let's begin with the first two verses. This is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. It says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Okay, I just need to ask forgiveness for something before we go further. For years, I've called this guy Jarius. I don't know why. Okay, so this is like ingrained in my mind. So if I say that, that's not his name. His name is Jairus. Okay, so if I do that, that's just a slip up that I've read the Bible like somebody from Pearl for the past several years of my life. Okay, so forgiveness ahead of time. Sorry about that. Okay, this story starts 
with Jesus back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Last week, he went to the other side, and Ryan unpacked what happened as he encountered this demon-possessed man. And so he's back on the western shore, and it's no surprise to us at this point that Jesus is surrounded by great crowds. And you see that in verse 21. There are three main characters in this passage today. Jesus, this man named Jairus, and a woman. And here we meet Jairus. So Mark describes this man named Jairus as, a, as one of the rulers of the synagogue. So this man was in a position of Jewish leadership. And this doesn't necessarily mean that he was a rabbi, a teacher. He was more like a, ma- a manager in the synagogue system. And if you want to check this out, Acts 13, 15 shows the job of these rulers. They had the authority to decide who taught and who didn't in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. So Jairus was one of these men. He was one of the rulers. So when you think about Jairus, you need to think Jewish leader. This man was a Jewish leader. This, this man was well respected for his devotion to God. This, this was a leader in this Jewish culture. He would have been a prominent man because he was a leader. And more than likely, just remember this for later, more than likely this would have been a wealthy man. Okay? Now, Jairus would have heard about Jesus because he was a ruler in the synagogue in what many believe to be the city of Capernaum. Okay? And Jesus has been doing ministry in this area on the western side of the Sea of Galilee for almost two years now. So this man would have heard about Jesus. He may have heard Jesus teach. He may have saw Jesus work a miracle. We don't know exactly what kind of contact that they would have had previously, but we do know this. This Jewish leader goes to see Jesus. Okay? Now, what do, what do you need to know about that? You need to know that the other rulers in the synagogue, he was one of a few in that verse, they wouldn't have liked that. They would not have liked that this man went to see Jesus. And the Jewish leaders in this context, in this culture, would not like the fact that he goes to see Jesus. But the text says he does more than go to see Jesus. I want you to see that. He fell at Jesus' feet. And what you need to remember, you'll see this again, that Jews don't bow to anybody. Okay? This is a culture, a monotheistic culture. They serve the one true God. Jews don't bow. This Jewish man falls at the feet of Jesus. And the next verse is going to tell us what caused this prominent Jewish leader to fall at the feet of a Galilean carpenter. Okay? What caused him to do this? Verse 23. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now the phrase that you just heard, he implored him earnestly, that means that this man begged Jesus. He begged him to do something. This man was in a desperate situation. Okay, This man's little girl is about to die. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record. they all record the same stories in their Gospels. And in Luke's Gospel, you find out that this man's little girl was his only daughter. Okay? This man is in a desperate situation. Mark uses a Greek word in this text to describe this girl's condition. It's called eschatos. That's where we get our word. It's a Christian uh, theology word called eschatology. That, that word means the study of the last thing, the study of end times. And so I want you to see this. Mark has given us a vivid description of this girl's condition. She is at the end. She is at the last breath. Okay? This little girl, this man's little girl, is at death's door. And her life, according to this, this text, her life is hanging by a thread. 
Her life is hanging by a thread. Later in this story, you'll find out that this little girl is 12 years old. So here you have this great desperate need of this man. He's got a 12-year-old little girl and her life is hanging by a thread. And I want you to think like a parent for a minute. Think like a parent for just a minute. If you are a parent, think like a parent. If you're not a parent, try to think like a parent. Think about this man. Okay, Picture the love that this man would have had for his only little girl. She's 12 years old. Roll through your mind. Think about the memories that they had made as a family over 12 years. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the turmoil that this man is experiencing? That his little girl, his little 12-year-old girl, is at the door of death. Okay? Listen to G. Campbell Morgan quote on this. He says, Great is the sorrow of Jarius. I just did it. I told you. Okay, G. Campbell Morgan says, Great is the sorrow of Jairus. And he says, Twelve years of sunshine, now sudden darkness. I love that quote. I think that quote unpacks exactly what's happening in this text. Okay, But what else I want you to see is that something else besides turmoil is happening in the heart of this man. Okay, so you're still thinking like a parent, right? All right? Put yourself in this position. Twelve-year-old child at the doorway to death. What is the only appropriate place for a parent to be when your child is about to slip into eternity? Only appropriate place for you is where? Right beside your dying little girl. Right beside her bed. This is the only appropriate place for you, right? That you want to be there for her until the very end, to the last breath that you're there, that you're there when she shuts her eyes and goes into eternity. Any parent... Okay, almost any parent, naturally, you just understand that I'm going to be there for my little girl. And what I want you to see is that he's not beside his dying little girl. This man, Jairus, is not beside his dying little girl. And I want you to ask the question, why? If she is at the very last and the very end, why is Jairus not beside this 12-year-old girl? And here's the answer, because great is the faith of Jairus. Okay, great is the faith of Jairus. This man is so confident in the ability of Jesus that he leaves his dying daughter. Okay, he leaves his dying daughter. And this prominent Jewish man goes and falls at the feet of Jesus. In the Greek text of the New Testament, Matthew uses the word for worship for what he did when he came to Jesus. He worshiped Jesus. This Jewish leader bowed down and worshipped Jesus. Great is the faith of Jairus. This man had faith in Jesus. I want you to also see that he, did, he didn't come to Jesus and say, can you heal my little girl? He came to Jesus and said, will you? Will you come? And notice the confidence that he expresses. And this man says, Jesus, if you come and you lay your hands on my little girl, she will live. Do you see the confidence that this man has in Jesus? Great is the faith of Jairus. Try to picture the heart of this man. Confidence in Jesus. Okay? But fearful because he's, he's in an emergency situation and he's fearful because he doesn't know if he'll make it in time. Will he make it to Jesus in time? Will Jesus make it to his little girl in time? And then notice the love of Jesus that Jesus goes with this man. Jesus grants this man his request. Okay? Verse 24 through 26. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So, the context, don't forget where we've been already. The context here is urgency. Jairus and Jesus are on the way to the dying little girl, and this is an emergency situation. She's, her life is hanging in the balance. Okay, and in the midst of this emergency situation, this journey towards this little girl, we are inter- this, this is interrupted by this unnamed woman in these texts. This woman doesn't have a name. We find out that she suffered from a terrible sickness for 12 long years. Can you imagine her condition? Can you try to put yourself in this woman's place? Okay. I wanted to understand this better, so I talked to a couple of doctors to see what would the effects of 12 years of bleeding cause on the human body. And these were the common answers that they gave me. 12 years of bleeding. This woman would have almost certainly suffered from something called global fatigue. This would have been almost constant muscle weakness and extreme sleepiness. She had almost no energy. Constant bleeding would cause the red blood cell count in the body to drop drastically. And this would leave the body in a state of anemia. Okay? Anemia can affect the lungs and the cardiac system because your lungs and your heart have to overwork to try to meet the oxygen needs of the body. So this woman for a long time had been under this condition. And if you look at verse 26, she suffered not just from a sickness, but from cures, from treatments that these physicians had given her. She suffered from the sickness and she suffered from the cures. Here's just a few examples of ancient uh, remedies for this during this culture. This is from the Talmud, which is a, this is an ancient Jewish reference book. Uh, it mentions several treatments for a discharge like this. Listen to this. This is crazy. One was that a woman was to carry around an ostrich egg in a linen cloth in the summer and in another kind of cloth in the winter. Okay, And that was a treatment for this type of discharge. You see the superstition. Do you see the presumption, do you see the silliness of the treatment? Another treatment, this is more dangerous to the body, that you take rubber and you grind it up into powder and you dump it in wine and drink it like a potion. Okay? Don't try that. Okay? Don't try that. Is it any wonder that this woman suffered under these treatments? And can you even imagine? Let's just imagine that they try to do some kind of ancient surgery on this woman to try to fix her problem. Can you imagine the suffering? Okay? This woman suffered much under the hands of physicians. And we see from verses uh, 24 through 26 that these treatments didn't help her at all. Okay? She got worse. Over the course of 12 years, this woman got worse. And on top of that, she lost all her money. She spent all her money dealing with this sickness. So she is financially bankrupt. She's a poor woman in much suffering. And what I want you to know is that the physical and financial effects of this sickness, they don't even begin to touch the root of this woman's pain. This woman is a religious and a social outcast. Okay? According to Jewish law, look at Leviticus 15 for this. According to Jewish law, this woman would have been in, an, in a constant state of ceremonial uncleanness in this culture for 12 years. Social and religious outcast. No temple, no synagogue. Okay? These ceremonial laws were part of God's law to give His people a picture of what sin does. It separates you from God. Okay? And this woman would have been in a state of uncleanness for 12 years. No temple, no synagogue. Think about the isolation that this would have caused for her socially and her family and her friends. No employment. 
Every, every person that this woman came in contact with, according to the law, would also be rendered unclean. Okay? She was a social outcast. Can you imagine the effects of the isolation? Not only was she sick, not only was she broke, but she was isolated. She was all by herself. And then think about this. Her problem had gotten so big that it swallowed her whole identity. She doesn't even have a name in the scriptures. She doesn't even have a name in God's word. She's just known as the woman with the issue of blood. It swallowed everything about her. Verses 27 through 29 say this. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Okay, we just saw the background of this. Twelve long years of suffering. Okay, and she could have easily given up. But this, you don't get the picture of this, of this woman. She's a tough, gritty woman, even in the midst of much suffering, even in the midst of isolation. Nothing had worked in over 12 years, but this woman had heard reports about Jesus. She heard reports about Jesus. She didn't get up. She didn't give up. So, great is the faith of this woman. Uh, in verse 28, Mark uses an imperfect tense verb. And so when our text says that she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. What that means is she's saying that over and over and over again to herself. Continual conversation with herself. If I just touch Jesus, I'll be made well. If I just touch Jesus, I will be made well. If I just touch Jesus, I will be made well. You get a picture into this woman's soul. Listen to this Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. He says, the main trouble in your life is this, that you allow self to talk to you instead of talking to yourself. And then he says, have you realized that the most, that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Okay. And that quote is given, Martin Lloyd-Jones is given a charge for you to preach the word of God to yourself. Instead of allowing your mind just to go in neutral and think about all your problems, all your anxieties all day long. He said, this is the main root of your unhappiness. Verse 28 gives us a picture of this woman going to war in her mind. Can you imagine, if anyone had, had a right, if anyone could sink into perpetual sadness, certainly it was her, right? She could replay 12 years of suffering, 12 years of isolation, 12 years of financial suffering, right? But you get a snapshot into her mind that all she can think about is Jesus. Okay? You get a snapshot into her mind. She's having inner dialogue and she's fighting the fight of faith. Her awareness of Jesus is greater than her awareness of the problem. Great is the faith of this woman. This confidence in Jesus drove a weak, weak, remember chronic fatigue? Weak, sickly woman to muscle her way through a crowd of people that are described as pressing in around Jesus. This weak, sickly woman is filled with so much confidence that she muscles through this crowd and lays hold of the garment of Christ. This is a visual picture of radical faith. Faith that presses through obstacles to lay hold of the Savior. And Mark tells us that immediately she was healed. Immediately she was healed. Twelve years of no progress... And one touch from Jesus Christ heals this woman on the spot. Okay? Here's just, a, 
Here is just a truth from God's Word that Jesus shows more power in a nanosecond than several physicians have been able to show in 12 long years. This is the power of Jesus over disease. In a second, immediately she was healed. Also, this is just a crazy thought for me. It would be enough if she touched Jesus and immediately she was healed, right? Like if somebody touches you or you touch them and you're healed. She touched His clothes. She was healed by the clothes of Christ. So she didn't even literally touch Jesus. She just touched His garments. And immediately, Jesus is full of this much power. That's awesome. Okay? Verse 30 through 33. And Jesus perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And His disciples said to Him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet, and yet you say, Who touched me? And He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. Okay, Jesus felt it when this woman was healed. This means that the power of Jesus isn't just a distant force. The power of Jesus is personal. He felt it when it left His body and He felt it when this woman was healed. And then He turned around and He asked a question. Who touched me? And His disciples didn't understand the question. Because in their mind, they see everyone around Jesus pressing in on Christ. And in their mind, they're like, everybody's touching you. I don't understand the question, who touched you? But Jesus is asking a different question. Jesus knew that someone had touched Him in a different way. Okay? Someone had touched Jesus in a different way. Not every person in the crowd that touched Jesus that day was healed. Someone touched Jesus in a different way. St. Augustine has a quote that describes this. It's really powerful. It's thousands of years old. He just says, The flesh presses, but faith touches. And so, many touched Jesus that day, but this woman laid hold of Jesus with a touch of faith. There was something on the inside of this woman that made that touch effective. It was a touch of faith. Now, Jesus calls out this woman for uh, several reasons. One, He desires this woman to take her stand as a Christ follower. And then in a couple of verses, you're going to see that he desired that this woman knows that she had more than physical healing. Okay? But also, remember who's standing beside Jesus. His name is Jairus. And he's on the way to his sick, dying little girl. And this demonstration of power would have been a great encouragement to this man. And Jesus wanted to draw Jairus' attention in to somebody just got healed. Somebody just got healed. So why was this woman fearful? The text says that she came in fear and trembling before Christ. Why was she fearful? Consider this. Just by being in the crowd that day, this woman was violating uh, Old Testament ceremonial law. Just by being there. It wasn't acceptable for her socially to touch Jesus because she was a woman. And it wasn't acceptable for her theologically to touch Jesus because she was unclean. And she touched the teacher. She touched the rabbi. So she's fearful of the consequences of what she's done. And then Jesus' answer probably surprised this woman. Look at verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus showed His acceptance of this woman with a very sweet word. He calls her daughter. This woman, He calls her daughter. She's expecting the hammer to drop and the first word out of the Savior's mouth is daughter. It's awesome. Okay, This is a demonstration of the power and compassion of Jesus. Think about this. 
This is the demonstration of the power of Jesus. This woman is ceremonially unclean, but her uncleanness was not transferred onto Christ because Jesus is more powerful than uncleanness. Just like light is more powerful than darkness, it can't overcome Him. He's that powerful. He's that holy. This is a demonstration of His power. And His compassion is also revealed. It reveals the heart of God. And you've already heard this before. That the heart of God is that the needs of His people are a higher priority than ceremonial law. This is the heart of God. This is the merciful heart of God. The ceremonial law was put in place. It was a shadow that pointed to the Savior. But now, the fulfillment of the ceremonial law is walking around on the earth. Okay? This is a revelation of the power and compassion of Jesus. This woman was healed physically and spiritually. Physically and spiritually. The word daughter welcomes this woman into the family of God. You see that? Daughter. He welcomes her into the family of God. And then Mark uses a Greek word. He says, your faith has literally saved you. The Greek word is sozo. Okay? This woman was saved. One commentator said, this woman came for healing, but she found grace. After 12 years of no peace, Jesus sends her away with these words, go in peace. 12 years of no peace, and she's sent away from the Savior in peace. And He says, be healed of your disease. Okay, you need to know that this encounter, we're, we're on an emergency situation with Jairus, and that this encounter that we just read about with this woman, it took significant amounts of time. Okay, what we just read here, this, is, this took maybe 5-10 minutes to unpack. It took more time than that. This is just a summary of what happened. Okay, just a summary of what happened. There was at least enough time that passed according to verse 33 that this woman fell down and told Jesus the whole truth. Okay? Now, imagine that you've been suffering for 12 years of this crazy disease and in a moment you were healed. You think you're going to sum that up real fast? Okay? This thing had a lot of different layers to it and she unpacked it. Okay? So you have the context is you have Jairus and Jesus in an emergency situation. And then there's some significant amounts of time that gets spent with this woman. You need to know that. Okay? That's very important in the flow of this story. While Jesus is dealing with this woman, the thing that Jairus feared most happened. Look at verse 35. And while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So the healing of this woman, this delay, caused this little girl to die. You need to know that. This delay was intentional by Jesus. Jairus and Jesus were in the midst of an emergency, and Jesus intentionally stopped to help this woman. Okay? On the surface, this has led many to refer to this passage as the apparent malpractice of the great physician. Okay? Because on the surface, it seems irrational, illogical. It seems unloving. On the surface. As a healer, as a doctor, Jesus just treated a chronic woman before he treated a person in critical condition. Okay? He just did that. You just saw him do it. This woman who'd been sick for 12 years, she could have waited a couple of more hours until Jesus went and healed this little girl, right? But Jesus stops and he deals with this woman. So imagine a doctor doing this in an emergency room, okay? That you have a gunshot victim in room A. And he stops and runs an x-ray in room B. Okay? Do you see that? That doesn't make sense to you. In fact, in fact, this would be reckless in the medical industry. Okay? And it would probably bring a malpractice suit against a doctor. This is the apparent malpractice 
of the great physician. Imagine how Jairus would have felt at that moment as that news. Your daughter is dead. As it hit his, as it hit his ears. Imagine what he could have felt towards Jesus. Imagine him talking to him. Jesus, why did you stop? Jesus, I came to see you first. I, I came to see you before that woman came to see you. Why'd you stop? Now my baby girl is dead, Jesus. Can you imagine that? The turmoil in this man's soul. The apparent malpractice of, a great, of the great physician is a reminder that God does not work on our timetable. He's not like us. God is not like us. He doesn't think like us. And He doesn't work on our timetable. When God seems late, we can't impose our thoughts on God and our timetable on God because we don't know what God knows. Okay, We don't have all the facts just like Jairus didn't have all the facts. Jesus knew that in just a few minutes His little girl that He was grieving over would be raised from the dead. Jairus didn't know that. Just like in the midst of pain, in the midst of a trial, you don't know all the facts either. So every time delays happen, this is an, delays are not always denials, but they're always an opportunity for us to humble ourselves and trust God. We don't know what God knows. We don't have all the facts. So why did Jesus delay? What only Jesus knew that nobody else knew around Him was that Jesus desired to show His power over death. And he desired to test the faith of Jairus. Nobody else knew that, but the Savior knew that. So this delay from Jesus is intentional. I want you to continue to think like a parent. Imagine the hammer blow, heavy hammer blow that this would have been to this dad. Your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. She was about to die, but she's dead. Can you imagine the hammer blow to the heart? I personally cannot imagine a parent's soul, just the turmoil of hearing this news. I can't even begin to imagine it. Okay? This was a heavy, heavy blow to this man. But notice the great love of Jesus toward Jairus. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus basically ignores this news of death. He basically ignores it. And He is instantly there to comfort this grieving man. Instantly. Okay? Before the news even gets out of their mouth, and before Jairus even has a chance to respond, Jesus is standing right, behind, right beside this man, and He gives him a word of hope, and He says, Do not fear, only believe. G. Campbell Morgan says, The voice of utmost devastation was immediately silenced by the voice of utmost comfort. This is a word of hope. A word of hope for, for Jairus. And it brings this man into a crisis of faith. Think about this. We already know that this man had the faith. He believed that Jesus was able to heal his little girl. But now he's in a crisis. Does he believe that Jesus is able to raise her from the dead? Does he believe that? He's in a crisis. Jesus intentionally put this man there. The moment that the bad news hit, in this holy broken moment, Jesus looks this man in the eye and says, Trust me, in the face of death, this man had two options, fear or faith. Do not fear, only believe. And Jairus trusted the words of Jesus. In the face of his dead little girl, he trusted the word of Jesus. So great is the faith of Jairus. Verses 37 through 40. 
And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. So they arrived at Jairus' house and there was already a funeral happening. Jesus walks into the midst of a funeral at this house. And in this culture, in this culture, they hired professional mourners to come to your house and grieve the dead. And this is the group that Jesus encounters here, the weeping and wailing ones, professional mourners. Jesus interrupts this funeral. You just imagine that you were at a funeral. Maybe you've been at one in the past couple months or maybe you'll be at one really soon. And you just imagine some unknown man walks into this funeral and he says, everybody go home. They're not dead. Okay? This is what happened. Jesus walks into this house and says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Because from Jesus' perspective, he knew that he was about to raise this little girl from the dead. Now, these professional mourners had seen many dead bodies. And what was their response to Jesus' word? They laughed at him. They mocked him because they looked at the girl and they knew that girl's dead. She's not asleep. That girl's dead. The fact that this group of professional mourners, they go from mourning to laughing in like a verse, a verse and a half. The fact that that happens shows that they are insincere toward the death of this little girl. There's fakery here, okay? And Jesus, because of this, Jesus drives them out. Jesus drives them outside of the room. And He walks in with Peter, James, John, and the mama and the daddy. Jesus and five witnesses and this 12-year-old dead little girl in this room. So, before we read the next verse, I want you to feel the weight of this moment. Okay. Try to picture yourself here. Try to feel the weight of this dead 12-year-old little girl. This is the effects of sin's entry into the world. This is a living, uh, an example, a vivid example of the effect of sin on every person. Okay? And the ultimate effect, she's dead. You have a dead 12-year-old little girl. Think like a parent. Imagine you're the parent there in that room. Can you imagine the weeping? The tears, they, they're, they're looking at their lifeless little girl's body. Can you see this? Can you feel the sadness of the parents? Can you feel that in your soul? Staring in the face of death, the deep, dark moment. Can you see that? And then, see this great, brilliant light, and it just blasts through this dark moment. This is the power of Jesus. Verse 41 and 42. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. The light just blasted through the darkness in that room. The, this is the power of Jesus. Jesus Christ is stronger than death. He's stronger than death. The ultimate effects of sin, Jesus is stronger than death. This is a quote from H.A. Ironside. He says, Jesus entered the tomb. Jesus entered the chamber of death and robbed it of its prey. 
He demonstrated His power over this strong enemy. Jesus has the final word over death. So, think about this. Look at this text. Death, this strong last enemy, it can't even withstand two words from Jesus' mouth. Jesus speaks two words and death releases its grip on this little girl. This is the power of the Savior. Two words. Behold the power of Jesus. The Old Testament prophet Elijah raised a dead little boy in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you go back and read that story, you'll see Elisha. He raises this little boy, but what does he do? He prays to God. Elijah raises a little boy and he prays to God. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is greater than Elisha. Jesus raises this little girl and he doesn't pray. He speaks directly to death and death responds to the Savior. This is a reminder for us that God, He created the worlds, the universe, with the words of His mouth. He spoke and universes flied into existence. And Jesus speaks with the same authority. This means that when Jesus Christ speaks, God speaks. This is the God-man. Behold, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's king even over death. Jesus is ruler even over death. One commentator says, The kingdom of God finds its most powerful expression in the deliverance from death as the final and last effect of sin. So Jesus conquers this last enemy. Powerful demonstration of His authority. He conquers the king of terrors, death itself. And then look how He does it. Jesus displays unthinkable power with tenderness. Look how He does it. This is the power and pity of Jesus. He conquers the king of terrors in the same way that a parent would wake up a sleeping child. In modern day language, he would, it would sound something like you going into your little boy's room and saying, buddy, it's time to get up. Or going into your little girl's room and saying, honey, get up. It's time to wake up. Do you see this? Do you see the calmness of, the, of Jesus in this? It isn't even hard for him. It isn't even hard for him to conquer death. This is the power of Jesus. So as we begin to wrap up, I want you to think about this. Why is this passage two stories merged into one? All three gospel writers do this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you have this story of Jairus and the story of this woman is, is intertwined. It, it makes one story. Why aren't they two separate stories? And what you've already seen, what I hope you've already seen, at least one reason for this, is that Jesus wanted to show the intentional delay, that He wanted to show His power over death. But I think there's more. I think there's more to this. Mark does something in this passage that's easy to miss. Think about this. The woman had been suffering for 12 years from her sickness. And then here we see that this little girl that just got raised from the dead was 12 years old. Now, I do not think that that's a coincidence. That's, that's not a coincidence in my mind. And what I want to submit to you is that the 12 years, it links everyone together in this story. Okay? So think about this. The year the woman got sick is the same year the little girl was born. The woman had a 12-year affliction, a burden that she was trying to get rid of. And Jairus had a 12-year-old little girl that he was trying to gain. Okay? So Mark uses this 12 years to link everyone together in this story. And what he's doing is he's weaving a tapestry that's supposed to symbolize humanity. Okay? And Mark's purpose and his intent in doing this is he's showing the universal effects of sin on humanity. 
You see that? Sin has affected all humanity. Okay? Think about this. Here's what I mean. Both generations, the woman's generation and the little girl's generation were cursed by sin. They were under the curse of sin. It affected both. All ages are under the curse of sin. This little girl is young and this woman is older. Young and older under the curse of sin. And then think about this. Jairus was a prominent and probably wealthy Jewish man. And this woman was unnamed and poor. Rich, poor, high and low, all under the curse of sin. They all suffer. Do you see this? He's drawing this picture. And his point to us is that all are subject to sin and ultimately death. And then what does Mark do? He drives all humanity to the Savior. That the answer of humanity is Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's the only solution to our problem. The only one that can conquer sin in every generation, among all peoples, rich, poor, high, low, all peoples, all ages, is Jesus. Jesus alone can reverse the curse. Therefore, all humanity needs Jesus. This is Mark's message to us. Behold the Savior. Behold the Savior. He has power even over death. He's the only one that can meet the ultimate problem. And then in verse 43, Jesus says this, And He strictly charged them, that no one should know this. And He told them to give her something to eat. So why does Jesus desire that the five witnesses in that room who just saw this little girl raised from the dead, why does He desire to keep this silent? Okay, Why did He tell them, don't tell anybody about this? You would think He would say, go tell everybody about this. But He says the exact opposite. Why? Okay, on the surface, on the surface, Jesus is unwilling to reveal Himself to the mockers outside of that room. Okay? They just laughed at Him. They just mocked Him. And Jesus is unwilling to reveal Himself to them. But on a deeper level, on a deeper level, Jesus knows that He cannot be fully understood by the crowds until He finishes His mission. And Jesus knows that His hour has not yet come. Okay? This story shows Jesus' power over death. But this story also serves as a shadow that points to Jesus' ultimate display of power over sin and death, His cross and His resurrection. There He conquers sin and death forever. Okay? This miracle about this girl was to be kept silent because it's not the ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing. This is a foretaste of what's to come. There's a bloody cross and an empty tomb where the Savior swallows death Forever, And this had been prophesied for centuries at this point. Listen to Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. This is awesome. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Praise Jesus. All praise to the One who conquers death, swallows death up forever. This is what Jesus has done. So I want to pick up that scientist quote that we started with. There was a famous scientist converted later in life. And he had those two questions, right? Has anyone conquered death? And if so, had they made a way for me to conquer death? Well, listen to how this man answered his question. 
He continues, So I checked the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus and it was empty. And he said, there is one who has conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he, wake, did he make a way for me to do it? And this man says, and I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. Amen. He meets the greatest need. He conquers the strongest enemy. He swallows up death forever. This man referred to John chapter 11. I want to read that to you as we close. This is the words of Jesus. John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? And I ask you a question this morning. Do you believe this? I'll read that again. Salvation hangs on the answer to this question. Listen to this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The Savior, Jesus, has demonstrated his authority over death, the strong enemy. This is your only hope. Okay, let's talk about application real quick as we close. How does this story intersect your life? How does this story intersect your life? Certainly, God did not give us this story to idolize Jairus or the woman. Certainly, God gave us this story to gaze at the Savior, to gaze at Jesus. And this story is intended by, by God to stir up faith in your heart towards Christ. And faith must always be directed towards Jesus Himself. So Mark gives us this story to gaze at the Savior, and we must behold Jesus as He displays power, as He displays compassion. So first application is this. I pray that God uses this text to stir up radical faith in your heart towards Jesus. Radical faith. And listen to me closely. Okay? The point of this passage is not that Jesus will heal every sick person and interrupt and raise every funeral. It's not the point of the passage. Okay? But... I do think that this story serves as an example to us that very often when God moves in power, when He demonstrates His power, He does so through the means of faith, through a believing people, through a believing person. Okay? This is how God works. This is how He moves in this text. We see Him save through faith, heal through faith, and raise the dead through faith. So, therefore, let us be a believing people, a believing church, a church filled with confidence in Jesus. You remember the woman? Let's be like her. Let's reach out and grab the, the garment of the Savior. Let's press through obstacles, obstacles and be like that woman. You remember Jairus, right? Let's be like Jairus. He, he heard the news in the face of death and he believed that Jesus was greater. So may it be said that great is the faith of Grace Community Church. May it be said of us, may the Lord raise up a confident and a believing people among us and let the power of God flow through us to the lost and dying world. May it be said, great is the faith of Grace Community Church. Second, this story is also a great encouragement to any of you who are enduring trials. Here's what I mean. 
Let this passage serve you because let it be a reminder to you of the power and the compassion of Jesus. Think about the woman. Think about her. I want you to try to apply this to yourself right now. Despite the fact that people all over the world are suffering more than you are, far greater suffering despite the fact that people are suffering all over the world more than you, Jesus still gives you His attention. King Jesus is personally compassionate toward your suffering as an individual. You have the King of Glory's attention. Okay? Let that encourage you. Now, this doesn't mean that you're the center of the universe. It means that Jesus is personal. Okay? Let this encourage you. You cannot get lost in the crowd with Christ. He sees. He knows. And He's able to meet needs all over the world simultaneously because He's an infinite God, almighty, all-powerful. So the presence and compassion of Jesus in the midst of your trials is meant to bring you from fear to faith. And God's word to you today is do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe in the midst of trials. From this story, we know that faith is not passive. Remember that. Jairus and the woman both go to Jesus in the midst of trials, and so should you. Faith is not passive, it's active. Go to Jesus. And we also learn that faith must overcome barriers in the midst of trials. And you see that in the woman, right? This weak, sickly woman muscles through a crowd of people that lay hold of the garment of Christ. And Jairus hears the death, the news of death, and he believes in spite of death. So we must overcome barriers of faith in the midst of trials. You have to do this. You have to clear the obstacles and you have to fight the fight of faith. Jesus is stronger than your trials. And the word that you must grab a hold of is do not fear, only believe. And so my last reminder to us today is that the one with all authority is with us always, even to the end of the age. Behold God's servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words to us. And we just confess, Lord, that you didn't have to give us all these stories, all these revelations of the glory of Jesus. You didn't have to, Lord, but You did. You're merciful. And You gave us Your words, Lord. And we pray, God, that You would use them to bring forth faith in our hearts. God, I do. I pray that You would raise up us as a a people full of confidence in You, Lord. A people that take You at Your Word. A people convinced about Your power and about Your authority, Lord and all Your promises toward us. God, help us to lay hold of things that we haven't. Help us to love Jesus. Lord, help us to bow down in worship. Help us to feel the weight of Your glory as You display all of Your holy power. Lord, help us to draw near to You. I thank You, Lord, for this reminder today that You are a God of compassion. And You've called us near to You, Lord. And we pray that by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would help us to come to You, to draw near to You, to dwell in Your presence. Thank You for this story. And we ask, Lord, that You would use it to bear fruit in our lives. Make us more like the Savior. In the name of Jesus, Amen.